Oh, that's not good enough. That freedom ring. Yeah. I want to welcome everybody watching us by live stream. I want to welcome all y'all here. I want to encourage you to share the stream. I don't get a chance to do it this often, but we're going to go for it. I want to talk to you about Christianity and the founding of America. And I hope to show you a very integral part of how the gospel uh, helped shape this nation from its very beginnings. I also want to point, paint, uh, paint for you a social picture that is not a social picture that is being painted in modern times. I want to bring you some truths, all right? So everybody say, buckle up. Oh, this is a participation church. You guys should know that. Buckle up. That's right. That's right. No sleeping here. No frozen chosen. We are the awake and the live people of God. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a history, and I want to illuminate some things to you. So those of you that aren't familiar with this, you're like, duh, dude, I got this in U.S. government. Well, all right, that's cool. But just maybe you'll learn something here that you didn't know. So, but for the rest of the people, it's important that we know a little bit about our country. It's important. Anybody agree with that? Anybody agree? Anybody at home agree with that? Yeah, exactly. In 1620, pilgrims came to the New World. They signed something. There's things that happened maybe before that, but these are the high marks of how this country came into formation and where Jesus in this gospel and the churches was related to this country and why it's important in the modern age and modern time. And the pilgrims arrived in the New World in 1620, and they signed something called the Mayflower Compact. And this was in a document in which they agreed that they themselves would be self-governing, that they weren't going to look to the mother country, they weren't going to look to the homeland to govern them, that they were going to be a self-governing people. So you almost see from the very beginning that this country was determined to become autonomous and self-governing. When they signed the Mayflower Compact, they stated the existence of the colony. They had a mission statement. They had a purpose statement. Their purpose was that this colony exists for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. So from the very beginning, the very beginning of the inceptions of this country, it was about, it was about building something and making something that worked for Jesus. Just a fact. 1660, England comes in and formally organizes rulership over the colonies. Up until that time, the colonies were kind of just hodgepodges and just sort of trading centers and stuff for England. But now England began to establish a home office that oversaw the colonies in the New World. And so they brought with them a system of British government. They brought with them a system of rule, and they began to lay down rules. This is how England actually began to control the, the American colonies. In 1740, everybody say, Great Revival. Anybody ever heard of the Great Awakening? Have you ever heard that term before? Yeah. This revival went on for over 20 years. It was a great awakening that happened in America. And there was a lot of open-air preaching. There was a lot of proclamation of the gospel. There was even signs and wonders during this time. A lot of things were going on. And what was happening is that Christ was being preached. And it had a major impact upon the colonies. There was, they were going to the frontiers, they were going to the cities, they were going everywhere. And they were preaching the rulership of Jesus, the liberty and rights of all people under God, and the rights to private property. Well, this doesn't seem like much, but in 1740, this was a very significant statement. They were preaching that men are ruled through Christ, right? That our rulership comes from Christ. But one of the biggest things that they proclaimed, that these pastors, everybody say, pastors, Right, that they were proclaiming was the rights to private property. Because in that world and in those colonies, you didn't own anything. You own nothing. bringing forward. This was something that was very powerful at the time, and it became influential upon the thinking of the people. It's one of the things that the Christian church is supposed to do, and one of the things the pastors are supposed to do is to train you how to think. Huh? You're supposed to think with a kingdom mindset. You're supposed to think from his world, not this world, right? The cosmos, the world system, everything in the world, 
when the Bible speaks of the world, it's speaking of a system of thinking. It's speaking of culture. Culture in the scripture means system of thought. It's the Greek word cosmos. So we have a system of thinking in this world. There's a system of thinking within the church, oftentimes religious, and there's a system of thinking within the kingdom. We're not called to think like the world. We're not called to think like the church. We're called to think like the kingdom. This is a kingdom-centered church on earth as it is. We don't think in line with denominations. We think in line with Jesus. What does his word say? What does God call for? This was the kind of preaching that was going on back then, and people were responding to it. So 1740, there's this massive revival, and it went on for 20-plus years, major events. England at that time uh, became more oppressive on the colonies. They just finished fighting a major war with France, and so they were basically broke. And what better way to raise money than to tax the colonies, right? So instead of taxing their own people at home, they began to tax the colonies. Anybody, if you've been around America very long, you've heard this phrase, taxation without representation. Anybody ever heard of that? And so the colonies were like, you're going to tax us, and you're going to impose these taxes on us. Well, then we want want representatives in parliament. We want representatives in the government. And the king said, nope, you're going to sit down and shut up, and you're going to pay what we told you to pay. And so they began all of this oppression into the colonies. And so what happens was, um, then they began to establish garrisons and armies within the colonies. So the British would establish forts, and then they would set up garrisons. And so all of the colonies had British outposts within them. And they created a two-tiered system of justice. Sound familiar? They created a two-tiered system of justice in which the colonials had their law and the British had their law. And so the colonials were subjected not only to colonial law, but they were also subjected to English law. But the British were only subjected to English law. So in eight crimes that they committed against the colonials, the colonials couldn't try them for it. So they could rob, murder, steal, rape. They could do whatever they wanted. And the only way that they could ever have anything done to them was that they had to fall under British law. And most of the time that required them going back to England, which almost never happened. And so if you can kind of see this sense of injustice that is building among these colonists. And so they asked John Adams, they did a biography and someone who was trying to do a history of the revolution during this time. And this guy comes to John Adams in his later times and his later birth. And he asked John Adams, where did the revolution begin? How did all this come about? What brought this forward? And John Adams said, from 1763 until 1775, the pulpits of the American churches roared with the cause of Christ and of freedom. He said, you want to know where this revolution came from? It didn't come from a bunch of political activists. It came from pastors preaching the cause of Christ and calling people unto liberty. And they began to realize when they tasted freedom that they were under tyranny, that they were being oppressed, and that this is not what God designed. King George III, who was the king at the time, he called it the preacher's rebellion. He called the American Revolution the preacher's rebellion. And he said, the cousin America has been seduced by the black robe because the preachers wore black robe. So this is nothing more than a preacher's rebellion, and they're all just following the black robes. Interesting. So I want to share with you, I'm going to share with you a portrait of America during that time. And this, this, this completely contradicts the narrative that you hear today. And in times of deceit, we need to speak truth. Is this not true? Yes, it is. It's very much true. And so they don't, this stuff, this stuff, none of this stuff you're going to be taught in history because some of it's going to be basic, but then I'm going to get into some stuff that's pretty off grid and you never heard of, you never heard before. So we're going to start with this guy. We're going to start working our way through some, through a bunch of people. So throw the first slide up there, Alex. Okay. This guy's name's Reverend Caldwell, James Caldwell of Elizabethtown. The majority of the things that happened during this time, the majority of the, of the opposition came from pastors and from congregations. So this is a time of oppression. This is a time of tyranny. And the pastors weren't hiding in their basement telling everybody to be safe. They were leading from the front. Do you understand that? They were, they were coming out. And they were speaking openly. And they were speaking against what was wrong. And they were speaking for what was right. And so this is the Reverend James Caldwell. He's a descendant of Scottish lords. His family in, in Scotland had fought the British for hundreds of years. His ancestors. And so ultimately, the British, who'd fought wars with everybody, they conquered Scotland, put down the rebellion, they seized all of his family pro- family's property, and they kicked his family to the New World. So this pastor was very well known to the British. This pastor became the chaplain of the New Jersey militia. 
and he became the quartermaster of the New Jersey militia. He was universally hated by the British. They called him the frocked rebel. While he was off serving with the, with the militia, they were hunting him down. They found where his family was. The British soldiers entered his family's house and shot his wife in the head in the front in the presence of her small children. Nice, right? So this is what they did. He went home to bury her. So this guy goes home and he's going to bury his wife. The British just assassinated his wife, right? And so he goes home, he buries his wife at great risk. He had to go back where he was from. So he had to go back to Elizabethtown in New Jersey. He goes back there, buries his wife. Then he goes to the church that he was pastoring and he takes all the hymnals and he brings the hymnals to the soldiers and he says, tear the pages out of it and use the wadding for the muskets. And so they started firing bullets with hymns behind him, if you can get that one, right? They ultimately assassinate this guy. They pay a colonial to approach him. The British pay a colonial to approach him. And when the colonial approaches him, they assassinate him. But pastors play it safe, right? Right? Safe for the whole family. Complicit. Roll over. Right? That wasn't the way. This, this was not the times in which they lived. They understood. And they led from the front. I'll give you another one. Reverend John Mulberg. This guy's a Lutheran pastor from Virginia. He raised a colonial militia of 300 men out of his own church. Oh, I didn't forgot to tell you, the first guy preached with pistols from the pulpit. He would preach with two pistols in his, in his pants. Yeah? Pistols in the pulpit. What do you think they thought about gun control? <gasps> do you know why? Because he had experienced tyranny before. He was in a town that was being suppressed by the British. And he had watched, or at least heard stories, of what the British did to them and how they treated his family. Nonetheless, even after he left the pulpit, he saw what he saw for himself. They put a bullet in his wife's head. Reverend John Mulberg, this guy, he raised a militia of 300 men from his own church. He fought with Washington and was field promoted. Pastor, his last sermon before he joined the militia was on Ecclesiastes, and he said, there's a time for peace and a time for war. And he said, the time for war has come, and he took off his black robe, and he had a colonial officer's uniform underneath it. And he raised 300 men from his own church that went and joined. They formed the 2nd Virginia Militia, and they fought with Washington. This guy's one of my favorites. I love this dude. Pastor Jonas Clark. I love that hair, man. He's like, yeah. So what's happening now is the British, all of this stuff is stirring, and the British are in Massachusetts because Massachusetts was always ready for a fight back in those days. And so they're moving, must be all the Irish, I suppose, but anyway, they're moving towards Concord. And in Concord, Massachusetts, there was a cache of weapons. There was powder, there was rifles, there's all these different things that are there. And so they're moving towards Concord, but the, the colonials had already taken the weapons out, but the British are marching on Concord. And so Paul Reveal rides to, uh, to, to Concord and he meets with the militia in Pastor Jonas's church. And he asked the leader of the militia, he says, will you fight? And he said, we have been born for this hour. We will fight and we will die if necessary, all under the shadow of this house of God. So the next day, the British are marching. 700 British soldiers. Who do you think ran out there in the front? Was it the town mayor? Was it the local politician? Was it a lawyer? Was it, was it uh, your congressperson? The person who ran out to the bridge and led 77 men against 700 was a pastor, and it was Jonas Clark. And so Pastor Jonas Clark stood in the middle of the bridge with his armed men, outnumbered 10 to 1, and they said, in the name of King George, lay down your arms. And he said, we know no king but Jesus, and we will not fire unless fired upon. But if you've come to bring war, then let it begin here. Oh, we just need to go to the basement, Pastor, and... We just need to be safe. Don't offend anybody. Don't offend. When they tell us to roll over, we should roll over. You don't know where this country's coming from. You don't know the fire and the blood that, that this country's coming from. And you don't know who did it. The first thing the British did was shut down the churches. Did you know that? Silence the churches. Make them quiet. Shut their doors. Article 1 of the Constitution of the United States, not Article 10, not Article 15, not Article 2. Article 1, right? The right of religious assembly shall not be infringed. Under no circumstances shall religious assembly be denied in this country. Under no 
circumstances. They met during the Black Plague. They had like a smallpox epidemic. Churches were still open, still open. Do you know why? Because the right of religious assembly shall not be impeded upon. Article 1. Why did they do Article 1? Why didn't they wait a little bit later? Because they knew where the effect of change was going to come from. If you don't think there's some systematic voice or some systematic plan to silence churches, and if you don't think that there's some systematic thing going on in our day that's trying to destroy this country, you don't, you're, you're woefully ignorant. Woefully ignorant. Shut the churches up. Good God, California couldn't open their doors till maybe not even four months ago, five months ago. I think Canada's still on lockdown. <laughs> Australia, New Zealand, give me a break. Anybody ever heard of Went, Went, Wentworth Cheswell? Anybody heard of this guy? Throw this guy up here. Huh? Do you know who he was? So here's the narrative. Here's the narrative in the country. This is what they're trying to impose upon our country. They want to do something called critical race theory. The premise of critical race theory says that America was founded upon slavery and exists for the preservation of slavery. Well, let's just take a look at that, right? Wentworth Chesworth was a deacon and a disciple of a, of a pastor whose name, he was a deacon in his local church. He was a disciple of De Jeremy Belknap. Everybody say it with me. Free black man. man. Own 20 acres. So here you have a free black man owning 20 acres in the United States. Okay? 1776, and there's way more than that. 1776, he joined the Light Horse Brigade of the American Revolution. He became mem a member of colonial intelligence. He was a midnight rider. He was one of Paul Revere's midnight rider. Has anybody ever told you that a black man rode with Paul Revere? No, no one's ever told you that. And do you know why? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the, the divisiveness that's always trying to be sown. Black man rode with Paul Revere. <laughs> Crazy, right? He rode the same routes that Paul Revere carrying messages back and forth between the colonial lines. Back and forth. Risked his life constantly. Constantly risking his life. No one ever tells you that because it doesn't fit the narrative. Reverend Lemuel Hayes, throw this one up there. Everybody say it with me. Pastor. Right? Everybody say this. Free black man. That's right. Joined the Continental Army, fought at Ticonderoga. After the war, he returned to his church. And from his church, he began to speak openly and passionately against the southern states who refused to free the slaves. And he specifically, oh, I'll give you another one. Everybody says to me, black man who was a Republican. He spoke openly against the Southern Democrats because it was the Democrats who sought to keep the blacks as slaves and keep them suppressed. And he spoke openly against them, allowed to speak openly against them. Right? By the way, both of these men, say it with me, black fathers, white mothers. So what was the view of the colonies as it related to interracial marriage? Wasn't a problem at all, was it? No big deal, right? He had a black father and a white mother. So did, the, so did Paul Revere's Midnight Rider. Black father, white mother. And we have this guy. Let me see what else I got here. All right, say it with me. Methodist deacon. Oliver Cromwell. Throw that guy up there. That's right. Say Methodist deacon Oliver Cromwell. Served with George Washington. George Washington personally signed his discharge papers, presented him with a minted badge of military merit, and cited Cromwell for his military discipline, superior personal conduct, dedication, and sacrifice to the colonial cause. He is known to be that he was one of George Washington's, what they consider George Washington's lifeguard. He was considered a close associate of George Washington and considered what George Washington would call his lifeguard. Washington guaranteed him a pension of $35,000 a year. When he got out and he wanted a colonial pension, they were getting less than that, and Washington said, no, this dude gets more. And so he got him in today's money of $35,000 a year. This man used that money, everybody say, purchase land, right? Landowner, again, right? Landowner, he purchased 100 acres and he raised 15 children. Has anybody ever told you that? Of course not. Doesn't fit the narrative. Say it with me. But wait. But wait. There's a Cuban connection. There's a Cuban connection. There is. <laughs> That's right. I know where I live. I know where I'm at. So this guy, 
This guy's name's Bernardo de Galvez. He is the Spanish mayor of, or Spanish governor of Louisiana. So if you understand the country at this time, it was nothing more than colonies and territories and different nations owned different parts of this country. England owned the seaboard, you know, France owned parts, you know, Spain owned parts and all these different things are going on. So this guy at the time is the Spanish governor of the state of, or not, it's not the state, of the territory of Louisiana. The colonials approach him and say, will you help us? We need help. And he says, I will do it. I alone will do it. And I will do it for the glory of God and the cause of liberty. The thing that you're going to see consistently is all these people were Christians. Every single one of them. They were not secularists. They were not intellectuals. They, were, they might have been intellectuals, but they were all Christians. All of them. And so this guy pledges loyalty to the American cause. And the British had blockaded the seaboard. So the so they had, British had blockaded the eastern seaboard so they couldn't get any shipments in. And so Bernardo sails from New Orleans over to Havana, huh, huh? Because the Spanish had a fort in Havana and he went to the fort at Havana and he did this multiple times, loaded his ship with guns and powder and then sailed back up the Mississippi and delivered weapons to the American cause. That's what he did. But wait, there's more. At the end of the war, so the British have been beaten back finally, years into this, and they're at uh, Yorktown and their general is Cornwallis, and Washington has them surrounded. By now the French are involved, so they're blocking them at sea, and so Washington has the British army enclosed. The British general asks for the southern command, the southern army, the British southern army, to come north and help him. The British southern army starts to move north, and Bernardo attacks the fort at Pensacola in Florida, which was considered a huge deal. And so he attacks the fort in Pensacola. The southern army now has to turn around and go back and defend that fort, leaving the British general isolated and enabling Washington to capture the British northern army. Pretty important, huh? Washington says his contributions to the colonial cause are without, just beyond mention. This guy helped us in so many ways. It's beyond mention. He was allowed to sign and help frame the Treaty of Paris. So the Treaty of Paris is what initiated the surrender, the formal surrender of the British colonies. And so this guy was part of that. And so in an age of ignorance, we need to speak truth. We need to understand. So let me, let me give you a little bit more. In 1783, the war ends. So the war ends in 1783. Everybody say, 1784. Our constitution is ratified. Right? So now the war's over, and now we put a constitution together. So 1784, the Constitution is ratified. In 1789, five years after uh, the Constitution is ratified, slavery is abolished in all of the New England colonies except two. So within five years of the signing of the Constitution, all of the New England colonies except New York and New Jersey abolished slavery. But you see, the narrative that is being taught today is that America was founded upon slavery and works to propagate slavery. So I'm going to say this. I, I want, I'll say that. There are injustices. I'm not denying injustices. There's lots of injustices. But, it, but from the beginning, and so what happens is, is that five years afterwards, the majority of the New England colonies say no more slavery, and then they say all of the Western territories, no more slavery. And so they, they took away slavery in the, south, in, the, in the northern states. The south still held on. The south's like, nope, nope, we're, we're not. And those Western territories became states. They became Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Illinois never held a slave. Michigan's never held a slave. Ohio's never held a slave. Minnesota's never held a slave. There's not been, so this narrative that this, this country is all about slavery, they, you, people don't know what, they're, they're telling you something that's not true. Again, I'm not saying there's not injustices. There's all types of ethnic injustices. There's all types of economic injustices. There's all types of gender injustices. There's all types of social injustices. Of, pick one. If you want to find an injustice, throw a rock, right? There's a lot of inequality in our country. That's not necessarily the, if, the issue, but the issue is not this narrative. It's not that. And I think on Independence Day, it's important that you understand what the history of this country actually is. I'm not saying there isn't. I shared with First Service, I said, I go, there's, there's legal injustices, good God. Try being poor and getting arrested. 
They will grind you to powder. They will grind you to powder if you have no money in our system. That's systematic injustice. It is a, it is a, it is a system that grinds, devours, and destroys the poor. They'll charge you with something you didn't do and you'll have no means to defend yourself and they'll give you a public defender who the only time you'll see that public defender is when he's walking in to give you a plea and tell you what you need to do. There's no legal representation for the poor. It doesn't exist. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. They were asked that, that is a systematic injustice. That is an economic injustice. You don't have money, they know it. These, they, they double down on you when they know you don't have money. They back off you when you know you have a lawyer. So be rich and be in that system. You're going to get smacked on the hand. If you think that American justice is ideal, you don't know American justice. I'm not saying there aren't good things that happen, but there is a system, there is a system that destroys and devours poor people in, in that system. It caters to the rich. It, you can get away with murder if you're rich. <laughs> you can, just about. You can get away with, with anything if you're rich. holding back my words. <laughs> in 1799, New York ends slavery. In 1804, New Jersey ends slavery. In all of the West, not just the Northern Western Territory, but all of the Western Territory is declared free. And this becomes a flashpoint that actually leads to the Civil War because the United States says no more slavery. And the South says, no, we want slavery. And the North says, well, we can't stop them because we are, so everybody say it with me. We are, we are. the United States. United States. It's an important thing you need to know about your country, which isn't taught to you. We're not a federalist society. We are United States. We are a representative republic. We are self-governed. We are a group of states that determine that we will unite together and allow a federal government to lead us. But we do that willingly. You understand that? America is not based by fiat from Washington. And so what happens is, is these states, as being part of the United States, were saying that they had the right to self-govern and that they had the right to, to, to get slavery. And so at that time, they wouldn't object to that. They say, okay, well, we can't stop you, but we can limit any more expansion of slavery, and we're not going to have it. And so the South began to contend that, and they began to fight against that. And that's where the whole Kansas thing happened with John Paul Jones, you know, and all these, and it was a flashpoint that happened there because they, the, uh, the abolitionists were there trying to stake out territory and all the slave states were there trying to stake out territory and they were colliding, trying to fight over Kansas, the Western, one of the Western states, whether or not it was gonna be slave or free. That's the way it, it was back then. In 1808, Thomas Jefferson is, tries to abolish slavery nationally. Right? This guy gets a huge bad rap. He tried to abolish slavery nationally. His own state of Virginia opposed him. His own state opposes him as well as all of the southern states, so he wasn't able to pass a federal law because he, he, nothing gets done. We're united, right? So this is, I'll just give you an example of this. Everybody's all freaked out. Oh, my gosh. You're like, and I have my positions. They think, oh, you know, the Supreme Court ended abortion in this country. No, they didn't. What the Supreme Court did in this country was they gave abortion back to the states because we are a self-governing uh, United States. And so what they said is the federal government does not have the legal authority to dictate this as a national policy. And so they handed it back to the states and said states can now, because we are United States, can determine whether or not they want abortion in their states. So everybody's like, oh, they've ended abortion. They haven't ended abortion. Don't have to worry. California's still going to have abortions. New York's still going to have abortions. New Jersey's, all the liberal lefties are still going to keep killing babies. It's just going to keep going on. But the states that don't want abortion and don't want to be forced to do that, and their populations say, why should we be forced to pay into a system that we don't agree with morally? Why should the federal government dictate this policy to us? And that was the constitutional challenge. And it's taken 50 years, 50 years. And that was when, they, when, when the Supreme Court ruled, they didn't rule to banish abortion. They ruled to take the issue and give it back to the states because we're United States. We're not governed, we're not governed by federal fiat from Washington, D.C. That's not the way this country works. This country is extremely localized. It's very localized. We have a federal government and the states agree to be governed 
And when the federal government contradicts the state's rights, that's when you see states suing, suing the Fed because they're, they're, they're challenging the right to self-govern. You don't have the right to tell us this. We, we have the right to self-govern. And then you have a state, so you have Florida, and Florida has Tallahassee, and then you have a county, and so we have a, we have a Dade County government, Miami-Dade government, and then we have a city government, right? We have a, we have a local government. So the, the, the framing of this country was the decentralization of power, and they did it on purpose, because centralized power in regards to national policy corrupts. They had just been under a king. That was centralized power. So if you're not familiar with how the American government works and, how, and, and, and what this country's all about, that's what it is. We are United States, right? We're not dictated to by Washington. It just doesn't work like that, you know? That's why gun control is an issue of the states. This is, this is not a federal policy. It, this has no, they have no right to determine that. You know, if Chicago wants to make the most stringent gun laws in the country, they do, and they have the highest murder rate. Go figure. How is it that Chicago and New York have, have the worst gun laws in the, in the nation? They have extremely strict gun laws. You get caught with a loaded gun in New York, you go to jail for two years. Two years off the rip for having it on you. Most stringent gun laws. You discharge it, it's five. Huh? But they have the highest murder rates and the highest crime rates. Could it be? Could it be that there's a deeper problem here than not just, not just, not just that? Just a thought. Something for you to consider as we listen to all of the noise and the narratives that go on in, in our culture. And we watch fearless churches and, fearless and fearful pastors wane and weaken and let the government roll over them. The right of religious assembly shall not be infringed. Shall not be. That was one of the things I was saying when, when, all this, when they were making everything coconut. You don't have legal authority to do that. You don't have any authority. Church, you don't have the authority to close churches. They didn't. And they were challenged in California. And you know what they did? They lost. All the courts did in California. You didn't hear anything about that, did you? You didn't hear anything about that the churches challenged it. Most of them rolled over. Most of them capitulated. But there were two or three of them that not only sued their city, they sued the state. And they said, you have no right to close us. You have no right to limit us. And they won. But you're not going to hear that in national news because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the story. One church in California won $15 million from the city of L.A. Because the city of L.A. couldn't close them down. But they broke a lease with them trying to take their parking away. And again, infringing upon the religious right of assembly. A violation of constitutional and civil rights. Article one of the Constitution, Christian. The, these people try to shut down the churches because the churches are armed and dangerous. Yeah. We are the voice, right? We are to be the moral voice. We are to be the voice of freedom. I'm not saying we emulate that. We've, we're far from that. But you gotta understand what this actually is. I said that one time, some guy sends me a message. You should go back to 1776 then. I'm like, dude, you don't know anything about this country. If you, if you want to sacrifice your rights for the sake of freedom, one of the founding fathers says, if a people will sacrifice their rights for the sake of safety, they are worthy of neither safety nor freedom. And it's exactly what's going on. Sacrifice your rights and we'll give you safety. Big brother, mommy state will take care of you. If you're new to Elevate, I don't talk like this all the time. I don't get, I don't get the opportunity to talk like this all the time. But it's 4th of July, so let's just go for it. Right? This is how I am. Pistols in the pulpit today, baby. So here we go. It's true. And what happens is they shout the Christian down. They shout you down. They don't want the church. Everybody wants to play nice because we have very large religious institutions that are multi-million dollar enterprises. And we're afraid of losing what we have. It's just the way it is. So what ends up happening is... Um, after uh, 18, 1808, um, Jefferson fails in, that, in his attempt. And so what happens is northern, everybody say it with me, white northern preachers and white black and black northern preachers began to preach Christ and they began to preach the evil of the injustices of slavery. So all this is going on and there's a stirring going on in this country. And you actually have black pastors who were leaving their congregations in the north and traveling into the south. And they were preaching Jesus 
And, and they were calling for the abolition of slavery in the South. They were risking their life. They were risking everything they had. And so what ends up happening is the pot of this, the pot of this begins to stir. The pot of this begins to, 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 um, to, um, uh, to boil over. And in 1861, war erupts. War erupts between the states. It's the Civil War. 700,000 Americans, you lose their lives. For what purpose? To end slavery in the United States. But wait a second, I thought America was all about the preservation of slavery. You don't know your history. And you, there are forces within this country that seek to destroy it. You need to be aware of that. And they want a controlled narrative. And they want to divide us down ethnic lines. They want to divide us down socioeconomic lines. And they want to show that there's no unity among the people. And that America's always been divided. You don't know your history. You don't know your history. It was white, black, red. It was everybody working together. There was no issue. They worked together to form the cause of freedom. Yes, with their injustices, sure. They, sh they probably should have ended it in the South a lot sooner. But in order to keep the, in order to keep the, the, the colonial, the, the rebellion together, they had, to, they had to work with what they had. America has a lot of injustices, but her core principles are not unjust. Her core principles are founded on the gospel. And if that makes you uncomfortable, and people get uncomfortable with that. America's got problems, but she's the best ship in the water. If you don't believe that, I tell people all the time, there are planes leaving on the hour. Canada will take you. <laughs> right? You, you can go to Canada, right? That, that country's almost socialist. It's definitely socialist, but it's almost communist at this point. The powers that be within our country cannot overcome a decentralized nation. America is unique of all of the governments in the world because her governmental structure is decentralized. They want you to think that it's centralized, but it's not. They want you to think that all, you know, all hail King President in, on Capitol Hill, but he, has, he, does, he does not rule that way. He, he's not in control of that. And because they cannot, they cannot control a people from a centralized government, this government, our system of government is decentralized, they have to break this country. They have to create a constitutional crisis. They have to create something that would enable them to revisit and revise a constitution that preserves our nation. You need to be aware of that. So all this ethnic division is, this is not, this is, there's an agenda here. This economic division, there's an agenda here. And you need to be able to see above the noise and read above the noise because this isn't necessarily true. And you cannot allow revisionists to speak. Again, are there injustices? Yes, yes, there's injustices of every kind. Ladies, are there gender injustices? Are there? Right, you don't make as much as your male companions in some of your jobs, do you? You make less. Right? Some jobs women make more, but most of the time, if it's in a business world, women are paid less. Is that gender injustice? 100%. Right? There's class injustice. There's all kinds of injustices in this country. None of them are justified. None of them. What we are to do is we are to work for justice, but not for justice as we see it. We need to work for justice as God sees it. Right? These people didn't create this nation. This nation wasn't created out of risk and loss. And you all and myself, we are the beneficiaries of people who risked, who put their literal lives on the line and had their wives shot dead in front of their children. Right? These, not one of the founding fathers, every single one of them lost their fortunes. All of them were elite businessmen. And the majority of them, their fortunes were tied to England. And so for them to revolt against England meant they lost everything. And do you know why? Because the mindset of that generation was not the acquisition of wealth. It was to live a life for a worthy cause. And so they weren't looking, so our paradigm is completely different. You see, in the modern 21st century, our paradigm, the way that we think as a people, is to acquire wealth. Gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. It's all about wealth acquisition. The one that dies with the most toys wins. That was not the paradigm of that, of that nation, of that, of that time. The way that they thought and the way that they perceived was that my life is to be given towards something more higher than myself. That's how they lived. That's why there was so much self-sacrifice in that time. 
There's little to no self-sacrifice, even among our church leaders. It's all about self-preservation. Nobody wants to risk anything. Nobody. Safe for the whole family. Everybody be comfortable. Everybody be safe. Yeah, that feels good, but it doesn't really get, bring much change. We tiptoe through life on our way to a peaceful death. That's about all we do, right? Got a bunch of money. All right, well, they're not hauling it with a U-Haul. I can tell you that. You ever see a U-Haul following a hearse? I've yet to see that one. Anybody? Oh, he was rich. Well, look, here comes the U-Haul van following, it, following his hearse. That ain't going to happen. You know what's going to happen when you die? It's going to go to somebody else. Solomon said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I've spent my wife a life acquiring wealth, and now when I die, I have to give it to another. And who knows if the one that I give it to will be a wise man or a fool. They're going to lament you, and if you're a rich person, they might even eat some potato salad and say a few kind words over you on the way to reading the will to see how much you left them. But you ain't taking it with you, and you will stand if you will give an account of your life. The living and the dead will give an account. You'll give an account for your life first unto Christ. Did you receive him or did you reject him? And as Christians, you will give an account. You will give an account as a Christian over what you did with him. And if you don't think this is true, go and read the parable of the talents. Just Google it. Google parable of the talents and read it. The servants were entrusted. And the master, when he came, expected a return from his servants. And when they didn't give it and they had nothing to offer him, he just read the story and you'll see. You'll see. He never calls us to self-sufficiency. He calls us to live unto him. This is the message of the gospel. We live for Jesus. We live for his purposes. We don't live for self. We don't live for the acquisition of wealth. We live for something that is worthy. Nothing wrong with the acquisition of wealth. But it's not wealth for wealth's sake. It's not fame for, for, for fame's sake. I just was talking to a guy on Facebook that I know very well. Or I've known him for a while. And he's saying all this nonsense. And he's very influential. And he's had a lot of worldly success. And I sent him a message. And I was praying about it. And I felt like the Lord told me, you hold spiritual authority over my people. And he's like, use it. Because it bothered me what this guy was doing. I hold a position as a pastor. Do you know that? I do. That may not mean anything to you, but in God's eyes, that means the world. It means I carry a stewardship to bring forth what he desires me to bring forth, not what I want to bring forth, not even what you want me to bring forth. The Bible rebukes churches for bringing forth what their itching ears want to hear. Read Timothy. In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. They will deny power. They will profess godliness, but deny power. They will heap up. They'll make a pile of teachers. All of their teachers will be this big, massive people who will teach them only what they want to hear. Wow. Does that sound familiar at all? Yes. <laughs> he says that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. When they're teaching you what, only what you want to hear, there, there's no challenge. There is no change, Christian. The tone can be love. The tone can be affirmation. The tone can be exhortation. The tone doesn't have to be condemnation. But live for Jesus. That's the exhortation, right? It's not about you. It's not about comfortability, right? It's about transformation. Say it, Jesus. Jesus. Oh, it's going to hurt some of you. I'm going to tell it right to you. Jesus, Jesus is not interested in my comfort. He's interested in my character. He cannot build upon your comfort, but he can build upon your character. So when he's transforming you and he's trying to work in your life, he's not trying to make you comfortable and fluff your pillow. He's trying to transform your character because character becomes a foundation that he can build on. He cannot build it without character. And this is what God is doing in the lives of his people. But you wouldn't know that by the modern church because that's not what we teach. You know? Are you comfortable? Is the air too cold? Was the sermon too long? Was the worship just right for you? Was it too loud? How can we fluff your pillow? Can we put your feet up for you? Right? Would you like a goodie bag on your gumball and a pinwheel as you go out the door? Yeah. Culturally relevant, but kingdom irrelevant. Yeah. We're called to be kingdom relevant. Kingdom relevant can become culturally relevant. You understand that? But we're not to trade them. We're not to say, let's sacrifice kingdom relevancy for cultural relevancy, which is what they do. They just throw it out. Don't talk about sin. 
Don't talk about anything unjust. Don't make anybody uncomfortable. Don't make anybody uncomfortable at all. Don't talk about social issues. Omit certain verses. Don't teach the whole counsel of God. Leave out whole sections of the scripture. Avoid it entirely. Build your message in your church around this only. That's not what God wants. Paul said, I am innocent of all men's blood because I have not failed to you to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Not part of the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. He said, I stand innocent before the Lord. The Lord can make no accusation in the position that I hold because I have proclaimed to you the truth, the whole counsel, not part of it, not what you wanted to hear, not what made you feel good every Sunday. I challenged you to become as who you were called to be. He said, and because of that, I'm innocent of all men's blood. There was no guilt upon me. So I called this guy out. I felt like the Lord was telling me, I go, this really grieves me. I go, what do I do? And the Lord said, call him out on his identity. And I sent him a message. And I said, you claim Christ as Lord and you don't know this is wrong? And he sent me back a message and he said, well, you know, we disagree on a lot of things and I can see we have opinions, differings of opinions. I said, it has absolutely nothing to do with opinion. This is the mistake. You think your opinion's sovereign. Your opinion means nothing in light of his. Your opinion is subordinate to his. Your opinion in God's eyes doesn't matter. He commands, he doesn't ask. And if you don't know that's who he doesn't like, hey, what do you think, Kevin? What do you think of today? Woo! What's your opinion? He's king, he commands. Christian, your opinion is subordinate to his. It's not what we collectively think, it's what he says. And so this guy responds to me and says, oh, we have differences of opinion. I can see that, I said, it has nothing to do with opinion. I said, this issue goes far beyond opinion. And I said, you claim Christ as Lord. I said, I don't know where you're at in your faith, so I'm not going to address that. I said, but what you carry is a relationship to a legacy that your parents who faithfully served Jesus, this is what's on you. And I said, God has used you and has granted you great influence. And that influence isn't because you're so special or so good looking. I didn't say exactly that, but I said something along that line. The influence that God has placed upon your life is because of the faithfulness of your parents. And I said, I would challenge you as a son of the kingdom, to use your influence more positively and to stop speaking cultural things that are contrary to the kingdom of God. That's it. Didn't hear back from him. But I noticed he took the post down. He had two posts. He took them both down. I told my wife. She's like, you sent that? I'm like, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, I have authority. The Lord told me, you have authority. Call him out. I called him out. I didn't call, you know what I called him out on? His identity. His identity. I said, you're a son of the highest. Why don't you act like it? You're a son of the kingdom. Not all are. Why don't you rise to the level of your birth instead of lowering yourself to the standard of the culture? Rise to the level of your birth, Christian, and stop lowering yourself to the level of the culture. Just a thought. <laughs> what we see here in this whole thing, and this is, again, this is the narrative. This is the narrative we need to see. We see whites. We see blacks. We see Latinos. We even see American Indians all of them united. And you know what the common thread? They were Christians. Christians, all of them, united in the cause of liberty. We need to see that the central role is a fearlessness in the things of God. That's what brings change, is a fearlessness in the things of God. This is what brought things together. So one of the things that we have to do as a people, right, as God's people, say it with me, we're all equal in Christ. Do you know who the equalizer is? Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, you are elevated in status. You become a son on your first day or a daughter on your first day. You're given full rights of inheritance on day one. All of us, before the Lord, have value and worth. He's the great equalizer. There's no division. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, red, yellow, black, white, all precious in his sight. What we as God's people need to refuse to do is divide, divide over, this, over ethnic stuff. We need to refuse that. We need to stop dividing. We need to work together. We need to work together. We're better together. See, the whole narrative is divide. Do, do, is that God's tactic? Is God a God of unity or division? That's right. Who divides? The devil. Exactly. Devil's whole, one of the devil's main tactics is division. Separate. Separate. Divide and conquer. God's not about division. He's about unity. So anytime there's a narrative that promotes division, it's not of the Lord. Understand that? Just a thought. So we need to work together. We need to stop being, we need to be, everybody say, be bold, look, be bold. Be, bold. be fearless. Be fearless. 
Speak truth from God's perspective. Not your own, from God's perspective. When it came to Jesus, I quickly realized my opinion doesn't matter. I know that's hard, right? In a Montessori generation where we've all been raised to, you know, where our opinion counts for something. In God's economy, God, you know when your opinion counts to the Lord? I'm going to tell you. Because your opinion does count to the Lord. But your opinion does not count until you've earned it through relationship. Until you earn it through relationship. You're not an earn. I know that's a new. We don't earn anything. Uh, yeah, you do. You earn credibility with Jesus. You earn faithfulness with Jesus. You earn loyalty with Jesus. Your value and worth, you're already established. Say it. Jesus does not have favorites. He has intimates. Big difference. Big difference. None of you are, not all of you are favored, but not all of you are intimate. Huh? The intimacy is when God starts communicating to you. But you're not gonna, God's not going to communicate to you and even ask you, hey, what do you think? Until you've learned to sit down and shut up and do what you're told. And again, that's a, that's a coarse thing in this generation. That's a coarse thing, right? Job put his hand over his mouth. He said, I speak like a fool, right? I mean, over and over again, we, have to, we, we think that we have the right to determine things, and we do not. The Lord does, guys. And so until you can learn to listen and obey, then, in, then God begins to engage you. When he can trust you, he'll engage you. When he can trust you, he'll give you more. You understand that? When you've been faithful with little, you will be what? Entrusted with much, right? Given more. That's how it works. And so it's not like God doesn't care about your opinion. But in the beginning, he's not really interested. He doesn't ask you. He, we're not voting on it. He tells us. And our obedience or our denial of what he says, right, it relates to our lives and affects us on so many different levels. As a Christian, you are not bound to the culture, you are bound to his kingdom. And the sooner you can understand what I'm about to say, the more you're going to benefit. Your life, because you are a Christian, you're in Christ, lives and breathes through his world. And so the more you relate to him, the more you will flourish, the more the kingdom will come. I didn't say you won't have problems, but your power will increase, your authority will increase, your ability to overcome. You already have the ability to overcome, but it's very dormant. The ability to overcome becomes stronger as you relate to Jesus. Is anybody here? You guys know with me? You guys? <laughs> say it, Pastor Kevin, he's my friend. It's just pistols in the pulpit on this July 3rd Sunday. That's all it is. Just pistols in the pulpit, guys. That's all it is. Right? We speak the truth from God's perspective. We support and stand what is right. This is important. How's the church to be? We cannot be silent. People won't like me. They didn't like Jesus. They crucified him. Jesus didn't get crucified because he was Mr. Rogers. He was a nice guy sprinkling fairy dust on, on everybody in a dress. That's, not, that's, that's how we want to portray him. No, he was king and lord. They crucified Jesus. They won't like you, but you have to you speak the truth in love. There's a cause. Don't be afraid. Listen, man, kingdom suffers violence. A lot of opposition. I'm not saying go out there and blast the world, but if you feel so inclined to stand and to rise up, you should. You should. You should ask the Lord how he wants you to do it, just like I asked him. I'm like, what do you want me to do? He said, call him out on his identity. And I wrote the, I wrote the message, and I, this is good. And I, no, take those words out, put these words in. And so I basically let the Holy Spirit write the message for him, and I sent it to him. And it challenged him, right? But I felt inclined to do it. So let me give you a couple examples real quick, and we'll close. Anybody heard of Bentonville, Arkansas? I think that's it, right? Where's the home of Walmart? Bentonville, Arkansas, is that right? No? No, we don't have a Walmart crowd here at all. So Benton, no. <laughs> ben, Arkansas is located, I think their headquarters are in Bentonville, Arkansas. In the town of Bentonville, Arkansas. So how do we win, right? We have, we, so I don't know if you're aware. I don't know if you guys, I don't know how, how in tune or what your perspective is. Maybe you all just think it's okay and everything's just good and, you know, there's no issues here. But right now our culture is being overrun. There's a lot of different things that are going on, and there's a lot of there's a, all kinds of dismantling forces trying to destroy this country because they cannot control it unless they destroy it. And if you don't think that's happening, like I said, you're woefully ignorant, and you need to open up your eyes, and you need to ask the Lord to open your eyes to what's true. And so, how do we win? 
In this, in this war, the civil war, and I'm not saying we need to declare war, that's not what I'm saying, but in the revolution, the revolution was not determined by major battles. It was determined by local skirmishes. And so the local skirmishes, they were major battles, but the local skirmishes are what led to the ultimate victory. So what's going on in our country? I'll just give you a couple of quick examples, okay? You have um, Bentonville, Arkansas. Bentonville, Arkansas, uh, the school board, local school board was gonna introduce curriculum to elementary students uh, that was LGBTQ, ABC, EFG kind of stuff. They were gonna introduce it. One of the women, Christian woman, said, I've had it. It's like, I've had it. I'm gonna do something about this. So she ran for the local school board and she won. Do you know how many votes she got? 35. Yeah. You have people that are, that, are, that are being elected into positions of power with 35 votes. I'll give you another one. Uh, anybody remember all the transgender bathrooms and how we don't know a male from a female? So in case you don't know who I am, I'm a Christian and I'm a biblicist. I, I come from God's perspective. And Jesus clearly said he made them male and female. Right? And if this hurts you, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to hurt you. I'm just speaking to you what is true. He didn't make them transgender or confused. He made them male and he made them female. Now, there's a lot of reasons for the confusion. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of broken identity. There's all kinds of reasons why that happens. But it's not because God made them that way. And let's be clear, right? Or made people like that. And so what's happening is, is in, in, uh, they're trying to install all these transgender bathrooms. And that policy came out of Fort Worth, Texas. And do you know who came up with that policy? A school board member. And this school board member said, we need to get rid of all male and female bathrooms, all the bathrooms in not just Texas, but the, but the, but the country. If they take money from the federal government, then every school has to put gender neutral bathrooms in or they lose their funding. One guy from Fort Worth, Texas, got an award from President Obama for such wise insight. Do you, know where, do you know how many votes he got? 1,200. Fort Worth, Texas. One man with 1,200 votes is dictating national policy. So what does that mean? There are people in this room that need to run for office. There are people in this room, yes, yes. 35 votes, we can get 35 votes out of this church, man. You know what I'm saying? You know, there, there's, there are places that you can make an influence. And what happens is, is they want to project it at you that you got to have all this money and you got to wage a national campaign and you got to do all these different things. And so what happens is that we have a system that overwhelms us with hopelessness. You understand? And so they make you feel like you just want to give up, that everything's hopeless. It's not hopeless. That's not hopeless. There are places where you can get involved. You know, run for political office. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been hearing it for years. Run for school board. Find something that you can run for. Find, some, find a town. Find, find something that matches your demographic. Most local elections, only 6% of the voters show up. Anybody voted in a school board election before? Raise your hand, please. Anyone at all? I cannot ever remember voting in a school board election. Yet the school board is the ones who dictate what your children will learn and what they won't learn. You don't. They do. But none of us in this room have ever voted for such an individual. Why is that? Because only 6% of the electorate shows up. You understand? There are, the, there are people in this room, you say, I need a PhD in education. Who told you that? Who told you you need a PhD? You know what the beauty of America is? It's the beauty of America. If you believe you can do it, you can do it, right? You can do it. That's the beauty of America. In Germany, I told this first service, in Germany, you got, we were with this girl, she had to go to three years for school to become a dry cleaner. After she got out of dry cleaning school, she had to serve as an apprentice for two years. So she had to give five years of her life in order be before she could ever open up a dry cleaner, right? In the United States, you're like, hey, I think I can be a dry cleaner. And you're like, you can. You're like, I got a little bit of money. I think I'm going to open up a dry cleaner. And guess what? You can open up a dry cleaner. Nobody goes, do you have a five-year degree? You have three years of dry cleaning experience and two years of apprenticeship? Do you? We don't care, right? You rise and succeed based upon what you're willing to put into it. It's the same thing. There's no requirements for you to have a law degree. Our country is set up so that we are citizen servants, so that the average citizen can hold any office. Some of you need to do that. You need to pray into that. You need to find a place. I was telling Sherry, she's like, how do you do that? I was like, well, I go, I mean, it's not my field, but I'd find out who won. 
I'd find somewhere where I could make an influence, and I'd find out who won. And I'd look and say, oh, that chick got 300 votes? I can get 300 votes. I can unseat that woman. That guy got 200 votes? Ah, I can unseat that dude. I can get 200 votes. You know, finding these places, because the platform is what gives them the influence, and God needs people in these positions. You understand? Do you want, do you, do you want, to, do you want to say in what your children are taught, or do you really don't care? Do you want to say, are your children products of the state? And the state can tell you what your children will and won't learn. I tell parents all the time, you should be proactive in those schools. You should know exactly what they're teaching and when they're teaching it. They saw me coming. They didn't like me. I could tell you stories of stuff that went on that is so far so bad. I told it to one guy. He's telling me where he's going to send his kid to school. I go, let me tell you what happened to my son over there. I said, this is what they, he goes, they taught that over there? I said, 100%. I said, I walked into the school and I basically told them, this is wrong. I said, what this guy's doing is borderline pedophilia. And I said, this child porn with this guy's showing. You know, no, hold on, no, hold on now, hold on, hold, hold on. Your children, my children. And the only reason is because I was engaged. I could have stuck my head in the sand and just said, hey, they're teaching them everything good. Do you know what they're teaching? Do you go to the conference and say, I'd like to see the curriculum? You have every right to do that. You have every right to know what your child is being taught. Every right. What are you teaching here? Are they doing gay day at your school? Because that's what they're doing. Do you want your five-year-old exposed to sexual things? Anybody? Anybody at all? Then you need to get involved because that's what they're doing. I don't think you understand the culture that we're in and the times that we're in, right? And because we have held silent and not stuffed up because we want to be nice, was your child worth your niceness? Your Your son, your daughter, is that worth it? My kids are out of school, so I don't fight that fight anymore. But there are people in this room that need to fight that fight. You need to go in there and say, I'd like to see what your science curriculum looks like. I'd like to see what your, what your, um, your biology curriculum looks like. I'd like to know what holidays you're celebrating. I'd like to know, what are you doing for Pride Month? Right? Well, my son will not be coming to school for Pride Month. I would hold my kids home. <gasps> yeah. Where are you? Where's your faith, Christian? Are you a cultural Christian? Or are you a kingdom Christian? What are you? This is what I'm asking. You've got to determine who you are. If you don't know who you are, you're going to get run over. You want to be a cultural Christian? Go right ahead. The Bible has a word for it. It's called carnal. You're a carnal Christian. And you know what the Bible says? You're good for nothing. It didn't say you weren't saved. It didn't say you weren't loved. It didn't say you weren't going to heaven. But you're useless. Culturally relevant, kingdom irrelevant. Say it with me. Culturally relevant, kingdom irrelevant. Say this, I desire to be kingdom relevant, even if it means I'm culturally irrelevant. Where's your faith? If I'm trying to stir you on 4th of July, you're right. I am. If I'm trying to awaken you on 4th of July about things that are going on within our culture that are direct contradictions, not only of our faith, but of our morality, you're right. You're right, I am. I am. (laughs) get involved get involved know what they're doing you got grandkids anybody here got grandkids yeah and your son or daughter won't go get in there grandma get in there grandma and if they say oh we need a letter you're not the primary caregiver I'm going to go to my son and I'm going to say give me a letter authorizing me to be the primary caregiver you're not going in there I'm going in there I don't I'm not soccer. I'm, they're, they're not, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. You're going to let the enemy run in and run all over you? Then that's your choice, but you don't have to. You don't have to. Yeah? When you're silent, that's when it happens. When you do nothing. Now, I'm not telling you to attack anybody. I'm not telling you to verbally assault anybody. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not telling you to do that at all, but I am definitely telling you to stand for truth. I guarantee you, they didn't have it when my kids were in school. They had Pride Month at the school. I'd walk right in and I'd tell the principal. I'd sit down in the office and I'd make sure that the administration told, and I would be very blunt with them. You have no idea how I was. You have no idea. I'd sit right down with them because you don't control my children. You don't dictate to my children. I do. You don't, I do. It's a clear establishment of authoritative lines here of who has the authority, and I got it, and not you. The state doesn't authorize you. So I'd sit down with them and say, what are you celebrating Pride Month here at this uh, at the school, and they say, yeah, this, well, what are you guys planning on doing? Oh, we're going to do a drag queen show. We're going to do, you know, they, they're doing it. They're doing drag queen shows in elementary schools. I don't know if you're aware of it. 
Uh, you, they used to bring in clowns. Now they're bringing in drag queens. I don't know if you guys have taken a nap, you know, if you, if you get out much, but this stuff's going on, right? And I'd say, well, my children will not be coming to school this, this month. Well, your child's going to flunk. I said, no, they won't. I said, I'm going to tell you right now what I am. I'm a Christian. And you will neither penalize my son, nor will you penalize my daughter for, for not participating in this. They're not part of a social experiment. And if you decide that that's what's going to happen, then you're going to see another side of me that you probably don't want to see. Where's your faith? Where's your faith, Christian? Right? Your children are stewardships given to you by the Lord. You are their primary caregiver, and you are their sole protector. They, if you don't fight for them, that school isn't fighting for them. Those schools will not fight for them. And if you think so, you're woefully crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. My son told me stuff because he knew I would go in there. He told me stuff even when he got out of school. I was like, they did that? They did that? You know, my son's out of school a year, and he was telling me this stuff. I'm like, is that teacher still there? Because I'm going to go there. <laughs> not going to happen. You're here to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. You're not here to teach my child's social well-being. You're not here to cause and influence. We can have gay day at church, at, at, uh, at schools, but we can't have Jesus day. I said it before. Have your gay day, but let's have Jesus day. And let's see who wins. I'm all in. Let's do Jesus day. I'll bring Jesus. You want to bring Jesus? We'll have a party. We'll blow it up. Bounce house, the whole nine, Right? Your God, my God. I'm in, but no, no, that's not acceptable. Rise up. Rise to the level of your birth. Become who you are. Don't capitulate. Don't be afraid. Don't let this culture dictate to you. Don't let them own your kids. Huh? Don't let them, that's what they want. This, 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 this whole cultural and social experiment, and again, you need to pull your head out of the sand. They're not after you. They're not after me. Do you know why? Because they ain't winning me over. That, that, they've, that I'm a lost cause. They're not winning me over. But they're going to try everything in their power to influence my children, which probably are my grandchildren. They're not after you. And you know what they want you to do? Stay home, be quiet, we'll take it from here. Don't worry. We got it. We'll take care of your kids for you. You can do that if you want to or not. But say it with me. Let freedom ring. Say this with me. Rise, Rise to the level of my birth. Right? And let's say this. We've got a prayer team, and I'm going to close right here. I'm going to close very dramatically with the words of Abraham Lincoln. He said that we must not allow a government of the people, for the people, and by the people to perish from the earth. He, too, was a Christian. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray over you. All right, yeah. All right. Pistols in the pulpit. That's what I should call this message, pistols in the pulpit. Anyway, let me bless you. May the Lord bless you in every way. May the Lord inspire you, and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way, and may he give you peace, and may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. You gotta do your good clap, come on.